You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Intelligence gathering long has been shrouded in mystery from the early days to our current digital era. People have seen James Bond movies and read spy novels, but many do not understand how the field has evolved or how algorithms and emerging technologies now are playing a major role. There are interesting questions concerning how the area has changed and what it means for national security and economic competitiveness. To address these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. Dr. Amy Ziegard is the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute and the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. She is the author of Spying Blind, the CIA, the FBI, and the Origins of 9-11, and another book with Condoleezza Rice entitled Political Risk, How Businesses and Organizations Can Anticipate Global Insecurity. And now she has an impressive new published by Princeton University Press entitled Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thank you, Daryl. It's so great to be with you. It's great to be with you as well. Now, before we get to your book, I want to learn a little bit more about your background. How did a nice person like you get interested in intelligence gathering? (laughs) It was a very strange coincidence of circumstances. So I was doing my doctoral dissertation at Stanford and searching for a topic, and I had spent a summer on the NSC staff. So I became fascinated by how information got to the president. And I went to my PhD advisor, who was Condi Rice at the time, and I said, I know what I want to write about. I'm going to write a case study of the NSC staff. And she said, that's a terrible research design. (laughs) You need to actually compare the evolution of different organizations ideally created at the same time. So I went to the basement of the library and was pouring through microfiche at the time and came across this legislation, well, Daryl, the National Security Act of 1947. And lo and behold, this one piece of legislation created a number of organizations, including the Central Intelligence Agency. So the CIA was one of my case studies for my PhD dissertation. And of course, once I started looking into spying, I got hooked. And so I've been studying it ever since. Well, that is a great story. And I do remember those good old days of microfish and how difficult it was to do research and love the new digital era where we have information at our fingertips. So your new book has a terrific title of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. Tell me about each of those three themes, spies, lies, and algorithms. 
Yeah. So originally, Daryl, the idea I had for the book really started many years ago when I was teaching a class at UCLA. And I realized that most people didn't really know anything about intelligence and what they did know they learned from the movies and from television. So the first part of the title, Spies, is pretty self-evident. I really wanted to create a textbook and a popular book that lifts the veil on what is really a secret world of espionage. There's a lot of information out there, but a lot of it's wrong. And a lot of it is sensationalized. So I wanted to explore some basic questions like what is intelligence? What's the history of spying in the United States? But then there's the lies part of it. How does deception work? How did it work way back in the Revolutionary War? And how does it work today with artificial intelligence and other technologies? And then there's the algorithms part. In the long time it took to write this book, the world changed and we're in the throes of a technological transformation that we've never seen before with so many emerging technologies. AI is just one of them. Think quantum computing, synthetic biology, the commercial satellite revolution, where we can now have access to satellite imagery that uh, we could only dream of even 10 years ago. So this convergence of new technologies is transforming every facet of the intelligence enterprise, from how intelligence officers recruit human assets, to the types of intelligence they can collect, to how they disseminate intelligence and who they produce intelligence for, not just people with security clearances anymore. So I really wanted to take a look at the, both the history of intelligence and the future of intelligence in a radically transforming world. I mean, that is one of the things I really loved about your book. It is really a great how-to book. It provides a very comprehensive overview. You look at the history, the operations, and the contemporary challenges. And one of the points you make is you say that many people do not understand intelligence gathering and our lack of knowledge distorts public opinion and fuels conspiracy theories. So how is our lack of understanding distorting public opinion and generating all these false impressions? So I think there are really two parts to the spy-themed entertainment problem. The first part, as you allude to, is the public opinion piece. And so I started by doing surveys of my students and found shocking correlations, statistically significant correlations between their entertainment habits and their views about all sorts of intelligence issues. So people at the time who were more likely frequent uh, spy themed entertainment watchers were far more likely to approve of aggressive counterterrorism tactics like waterboarding, for example. And so based on those student polls, I thought, well, I should do some national polls to see if this is a broader trend. And in fact, it turned out to be a very broad trend. And I found even more disturbingly in 2013, when the former NSA contractor Edward Snowden was all over the news revealing classified programs, surveillance programs that the National Security Agency had been using or conducting, most Americans actually had no idea what the National Security Agency did. And those Americans who watched a lot of spy-themed entertainment had statistically significant different beliefs about what the NSA did and whether they were telling the truth. So spy-themed entertainment has become adult education. So that's sort of the first basket of why should we be concerned about spy-themed entertainment? Absolutely, I think, shaping public opinion. The second thing that I found when I looked more deeply at it was that 
spy themed entertainment was also influencing policymakers. Everybody watches James Bond and Jason Bourne and Carrie Matheson, and policymakers aren't exempt. And so I found a number of examples where spy themed entertainment was having real world effects. I'll give you just two. In 2002, Lieutenant Colonel Beaver at Guantanamo Bay later admitted that when she was brainstorming ideas for interrogation techniques she could use on detainees there, Jack Bauer, the fictional operative from the television show 24, gave them lots of ideas. At Leon Panetta's confirmation hearing in 2009 to be the CIA director, he was asked about a ticking time bomb scenario, a scenario that experts say has never happened and is only in the movies. And yet the Senate Intelligence Committee and the nominee took that hypothetical seriously and talked about what additional techniques he might authorize, which was dubbed, of course, the Jack Bauer exception in the press. I said I'd say two, but there's actually a third example that I think is really illuminating. When the movie Zero Dark Thirty came out, you'll recall it's the movie, the Academy Award nominated movie about the 10-year hunt for Osama bin Laden. When that movie came out, it was so confusing about what was true and what wasn't true. Oh, and by the way, it presented itself as a reported film. That's how the filmmaker, Catherine Bigelow, the director, and the writer, Mark Bull, marketed the movie, a reported film, a first draft of history. It was so confusing that the acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Michael Morell, had to write a memo to the CIA workforce clarifying the movie that it wasn't accurate to the CIA workforce. So when a movie about the CIA has to be debunked at the CIA, you know entertainment is not just entertainment. Oh, that is really fascinating. Just the impact of movies and books on public impressions. And it sounds like the CIA workforce as well. So it's amazing he had to clarify the situation. So at Brookings, we devote a lot of time seeking to understand the impact of digital technologies. How are new digital tools affecting intelligence gathering? How do they help us and how do they hurt us? Oh, that's such a good question. Let me take a step back because I've been thinking a lot about how do these technologies affect the sense-making business, the intelligence business? And I think that they're really driving five dramatic challenges. The first is the convergence of new technologies is creating more threats, right? You write about this in your book. More threats that can work across vast distances, say in cyberspace. The second is that emerging technologies are creating more speed. So intelligence has to move at the speed of relevance. Decision makers need information when they need it. And because of emerging technologies, everything is accelerating. So the intelligence community has to move much faster than it traditionally has. And that's a big challenge. The third challenge is more data, right? We are drowning in data. And if you think about intelligence as the search for needles and haystacks and making sense of the world, now the haystacks are growing exponentially. The amount of data on earth is doubling about every two years. So more data. The fourth more is more customers. So more people need intelligence outside of the government today to advance American interest and to protect the nation. For example, voters need intelligence to understand foreign election interference. Tech leaders need intelligence to protect our technical systems uh, and our platforms and our critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. And then the fifth more, and perhaps the most under-examined more, more intelligence competitors. 
So today, anybody with an internet connection can collect and analyze intelligence. We have an open source intelligence revolution. And that what that means is that the US government no longer dominates the collection and analysis of intelligence like it used to. Uh, and that's not good for the United States. It means weak states and non-state actors can gain decision advantage in ways that they couldn't before. So all of these things now are confronting the intelligence community today. So technology is not just a challenge, but as you alluded to, it's also a tool that intelligence agencies, a basket of tools that they need to adopt in order to confront this very different landscape. And do you think these new tools are a net positive or a net negative? I would like to think they're a net positive. I know you've written this great book about AI, and I joke that there are two problems with AI and intelligence, not enough AI and too much AI, right? So I think in general, if I had to come down on one side, we don't have enough adoption of new technological tools to make sense of all the data. I think AI can be an enormous advantage for intelligence, helping to sift through massive quantities of information at, of course, superhuman speeds. Just to give you one example, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency a few years ago did a partnership with the university to develop a machine learning algorithm to track surface-to-air missile sites in a very large area in China. An area so large, it's about three quarters the size of North Korea. And the research team did that and found that the algorithm could successfully track surface-to-air missile sites 80 times faster than the human team with the same level of accuracy, which was about 90%. So enormous potential for doing things like pattern recognition with artificial intelligence. So in your Spies, Lies, and Algorithms book, you argue that cognitive biases mislead analysts and create problems in terms of both public understanding and congressional oversight. You mentioned things like an optimism bias and groupthink, among other possible biases. So what are these biases and how do they create problems for intelligence gathering? Yeah, so my nickname for this chapter is why gray cells need red cells, right? So our human brains are inherently flawed and that, that affects intelligence just like it does other decision-making. I'll give you a couple of examples of sort of my, I call them the seven deadly biases, like the seven deadly sins. One of my favorites in terms of how prevalent it is and how we can see how it affects everything that as we think about the world is optimism bias. We are all more optimistic about ourselves, our investments, our favorite sports teams. And research shows that even when people are paid to make accurate predictions, say of their favorite NFL teams, they overpredict wins and underpredict losses. And optimism bias afflicts intelligence analysts too. So one of the reasons why the United States was blindsided in 1950 by China's surprise entry into the Korean War was optimism bias, right? General Douglas MacArthur and his intelligence chief were so hopeful that the United States would win in the Korean War that some of their staff were already planning a victory parade in Tokyo. So optimism bias is a huge challenge in intelligence. I would say the other bias that's been well-documented in intelligence is confirmation bias, right? So we tend to focus on information that supports our pre-existing beliefs and discount information that contradicts them. 
And so a lot of work, of course, on Iraq WMD and the intelligence failure there. Confirmation bias was a huge analytic problem that led us astray in the estimates of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. So those are a couple of examples. I could go on for a long time because I'm really interested in thinking about thinking and how we make sense of our own thinking processes. Now, those are great examples. And the book goes into much greater detail on those and other types of biases that we should worry about. You mentioned that technology is empowering enemies and creating powerful new players that can range from ordinary citizens who can use various digital tools to track migration and the things that are going on around the world to non-state actors who can spy on journalists or launch attacks on governments around the world. How are they doing that? And should we be worried about these types of new entrances? So as with everything in intelligence, there's good news and there's bad news with new developments. So spying, as you point out, Daryl, isn't just for governments anymore. And what that means is that bad guys can do things that they couldn't do before, but good guys can too. So when we think about, just to give you an example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the most important intelligence that came out, the best intelligence about what was going on didn't come from secrets. It came from selfies, right? Russian soldiers posting selfies on social media with Ukrainian highway signs in the background. There's a whole, I have a chapter in the book about open source nuclear threat detection. And there's a whole ecosystem of new players that are using only open source intelligence or publicly available information to track nuclear threats like North Korea's nuclear weapons program or Iran's nuclear weapons program. And for the most part, this ecosystem is filled with incredible organizations and people who want to do the right thing, who are experts and who put their information out there for the U.S. government and international organizations to understand. And they have uh, self-regulating, sort of self-focused quality control. But it's a Star Wars bar scene out there beyond this sort of small group of, of folks, including my colleagues here at Stanford. You have people who are trying to inject false information about weapons of mass destruction. You have people peddling all sorts of conspiracy theories. And so what that means for intelligence is the intelligence community in the future is going to have to do, spend a lot more time debunking open source intelligence or verifying open source intelligence And they're going to have to find new ways to work with a wider array of actors outside of the security clearance world that they're used to, because this is a new ecosystem that can be incredibly powerful if harnessed in the right way. So that is a good news, bad news scenario. And we can definitely see the upside and downside of those kinds of developments. In your book, you do outline many problems, but you also get into possible solutions. What should we do going forward to improve intelligence gathering and protect national security? Well, if I were queen of the world for a day and could do one thing to dramatically change and improve intelligence for the future, and this may be surprising to you, Daryl, I would recommend the creation of a new open source intelligence agency. And why that may be surprising is, you know, I've written a lot about coordination problems in intelligence. We have 18 intelligence agencies already in the U.S., and now I'm recommending we need a 19th. And when you have 19, they're even harder to coordinate than 18. So why do I think we need a new agency? Open source intelligence is the name of the game in the future. Secrets still matter, but less than they used to. 
And so it used to be that intelligence was focused mostly on secrets, and then you'd sprinkle a little open source on top. And now it's flipped. We're open source. Think Twitter feeds, social media, commercially available satellite imagery, pictures on the internet. That's the foundation for gaining insight, and the secrets will be put on top. But secret agencies will always give secrets priority. That's in their DNA. Just like the Air Force didn't get enough or air power didn't get enough focus and resources and attention when it was part of the army, it had to be its own service. Open source is the same thing. It will never get the attention it needs and the focus it deserves unless it's its own agency. I would say the other benefit of creating an open source agency is now you can experiment with new technologies in the unclassified world. So we can adopt new technological tools to mine open source intelligence much faster if there's an agency. And then the third benefit is people. I often joke with all due respect to my friends who live in Fort Meade, Maryland, no young person really wants to live in Fort Meade. So if you have an open source agency, you can forward deploy to places where young technical talent wants to live, like Austin, Texas, or Silicon Valley. And so getting the right people in the door in the intelligence community is also incredibly important. So for all those reasons, I think an open source agency could be a real enabler to a number of other far-reaching changes that we need in intelligence. So that is a bold recommendation to create a new open source intelligence agency. So let's assume we actually do this. You're queen for a day and your recommendation actually gets implemented into law. And so that means that this agency is going to use new digital tools to compile and analyze information. A lot of it online already, social media platforms and the like. In this new world, how should we balance personal privacy and civil liberties on the one hand versus the need to gather all of this open source information that you're talking about? Well, you've just zeroed on on the toughest part of this challenge, right? Which is how do we balance these contending interests? One of the things about the United States that really differentiates ourselves from intelligence in China and intelligence in Russia is that our intelligence agencies have real restrictions on internal security, internal surveillance. That's not to say they they always adhere to those restrictions. There have been some dark moments in the past, but the point is that there are laws, right? And we take these values very seriously. So there have to be guardrails about what intelligence agencies collect on Americans and how they do it. And as you know, well, that's just getting much more complicated because what constitutes an American collection effort? If there's a communication that runs through an American server, but is between two foreigners, does that make it off bounds or not off bounds? Under what circumstances should intelligence agencies be gathering publicly available information that people post on the internet? These are very thorny questions. And I think what you would need in conjunction with this open source agency is a very serious, transparent, robust oversight regime to balance those equities, because you can't just enable more intelligence collection without it. I mean, I would certainly agree about the importance of oversight in this situation. But as you've written about on many different occasions, congressional oversight is hard. It's challenging. It's a fragmented environment. You mentioned these 18 intelligence agencies. How can we improve oversight? So one, there is better oversight. And two, Congress has a better understanding of what's going on. Well, I think oversight is always problematic. If I could do one thing right away 
to improve intelligence oversight, it would be eliminate term limits in the House Intelligence Committee. Now that sounds like a really wonky idea, I know, but bear with me for a second. Intelligence is one of the few areas where people have to learn entirely on the job. There are more powdered milk experts in Congress than intelligence experts in Congress because so many members of Congress come from dairy states where they have to learn about the industry to get reelected. There's no Iowa right, for intelligence, right? No, no geographic area that requires members of Congress to learn about the intelligence business in order to get elected. So when members of Congress have to learn on the job, but in the House, there are term limits on the Intelligence Committee, which means just when members of Congress have done their homework and know what all the acronyms mean of the 18 agencies, they have to get off the committee, right? So this inhibits the development of expertise. And if you don't have expertise, you can't ask really good questions. So one of the reasons the Senate Intelligence Committee does in general a much better oversight job than the House, there are many reasons, but one of them is the Senate removed term limits more than a decade ago. And so there is more of a development of expertise on the Senate Intelligence Committee. By the way, on a Brookings podcast, you do not have to apologize about endorsing wonky ideas. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do. And so we love uh, wonky ideas. So uh, thanks for coming up with that idea. Uh, you argue that it is critical to depoliticize intelligence gathering, but you make this argument during one of the most polarized periods in American history. What does depoliticizing intelligence gathering actually mean, and how can we move in that direction? Well, I, I try to be a very nonpartisan person, but it's hard to escape the fact that President Trump treated intelligence as sort of a marketing function that should tell him what he wanted to hear. And he denigrated the intelligence community and cherry picked intelligence in ways that really were unprecedented in the modern national security state. And so intelligence adds value when it's not political, when members of the intelligence community are seen rightly as going where the intelligence leads, even if it suggests that what the admin current administration would like to believe is incorrect. So we know, for example, that in 2019, the intelligence community's annual threat assessment by then director Daniel Coates presented intelligence that suggested many things that the Trump administration were saying were unlikely to be true, right? Whether it's North Korea, whether it was about the global war on terror, or whether it was about Iran's nuclear weapons program. That is exactly what intelligence should do. It was a very courageous thing to do, and Director Coates paid the price for it, frankly. And so presidents always have friction with their intelligence agencies. As Sue Gordon, one of the former senior intelligence officials I greatly admire, told me in an interview, we steal president's decision space. And by that, she meant that intelligence agencies often tell presidents what they don't like to hear, but that's their job. And so I think we're already moving back toward more of a, a normal functioning of the intelligence community. But those norms are really important to reinforce because without constant care and attention, intelligence can get politicized, as we saw in the past four years. So in one of your concluding chapters, you note that it is important for government officials to do things differently. What should they be doing differently, and how would those things be helpful to intelligence gathering? Well, I think one of the biggest changes in intelligence that we need to have is the mindset that 
everything valuable has to be secret. So I share a little bit in this book about my own experience in being an outsider researching the intelligence community. And I would be the first to say secrecy is absolutely vital for intelligence to succeed. But too much secrecy creates dangers as well, and they're often overlooked. So I've had experiences where the head of public affairs at the Central Intelligence Agency refused to tell me his last name, even when he was visiting my classroom in what was an outreach effort to an American university. That's just silly. And there are all sorts of examples of the very serious implications of over-classification of information, which makes it very hard to share, very hard to coordinate. So I think the biggest cultural change that we're going to need in intelligence is that secrecy is not always good. One intelligence official joked and he said, we always think that if something costs a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars. And that's just not true anymore in a world of open source. So in terms of what needs to change, our mindsets need to change about where value comes when you're trying to gain insight, which is what intelligence is all about. Well, Amy, this is a fascinating book that I highly recommend. It is called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms and published by Princeton University Press. It is a great read and you will learn valuable lessons along the way. So I want to thank Amy for sharing her thoughts with us today at Brookings. We write regularly about cybersecurity and intelligence gathering. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. 